Hello, friends. Welcome back to the episode of Be Here for a While. Today's episode of Be Here for a While is brought to you by Clickbait, a new super cool podcast that dishes on all things pop culture. Does it have something to do with The Bachelor? I don't know. You'll find out. Stop screaming at me. If I sound a little bit stuffed up, I apologize. I was just um, ambushed by the landscaping community at large in um, uh, La Quinta, California, possibly the city as well. I was on a walk around uh, the complex my parents have a house in, just a nice leisurely four-mile stroll, but there's really only, it's essentially a circle from starting at the house going around. There's really no other way to go besides that. But well, I guess I could cut through the middle, but once you get past a certain point, you're either only going all the way back around or you're just going forward to the house. So I'm walking and, um, this time of year, uh, I really don't know the reason. I think it's something about like different grass in the summer and different grass in the winter, whatever they, uh, they kill all the grass in the complex. And on the golf course. And so, you know, for days I had noticed that, but I thought maybe they were they were done with the um, nonstop uh, kind of like mowing, but really just like spitting allergens uh, into my face if I, if, if I was outside. Well, uh, spitting allergens into my face if I was outside. And let me just tell you, I'm, uh, I don't know what exactly I'm allergic to when it comes to like polleny things outside in grass, but I'm very allergic. I get really stuffed up and yeah. So <clears throat> thought maybe they were done. I was like, all right, I'm in the clear. It's also not, you know, 180 out anymore. And so I was like, I'm going to go for a walk. Um, now, uh, it was all fine until I hit the part of the walk where they were doing the mowing still. So I'm getting all this, this grass, sprayed in my face. Again, I don't know exactly why they do this. I see it as a like vicious personal attack though to my senses. So I'm getting sprayed with that. Okay. I just got to get past this other part. Then I enter a section of the complex where they are trimming, um, these trees. So there's branches falling treacherously all around me, like in a video game, I'm trying to get away from them. And I'm like, okay, got past that part. I'm in the clear, but now it's kind of getting to that time of day where it's like getting a little bit too hot. Like I really should have gone at like 7 a.m., um, but I ended up leaving at like 8.30. So at this point, it's like close to 10 and it's it's really hot, but I have a I have, a, I have an exciting podcast. I'm listening to Dateline podcast to get me through. So I'm fine. I'm now enjoying myself. There's a slightly less allergies. They are coated all over my body. I will have to shower my whole body off. Not that I wasn't going to anyways after a walk, but including my hair to get it out. And um, I'm, uh, you know, rounding the bend, getting close to the last half mile to eh, maybe no, a full mile. And uh. I'm like, I can't hear my podcast anymore. Like, is there another lawnmower? And I look behind me, and about five feet behind me, there's a street sweeper. Didn't know you street swept uh, like a uh, like a private community. I thought that was more like just a public roads thing. So now I can't outrun the street sweeper because it goes so slow to clean the one side, and I can't I can't change my route now. I can't I can't go through someone's yard to get back to my. I can't change my route. I have to stay on this route, literally walking parallel to the street sweeper because they literally move as slow as I can walk. I was trying to speed walk, but that was almost making it worse because then it was like I was really keeping up with them. But then if I trailed behind, mind you, they're they're sweeping the street, but they're also kicking up the pollen that's already on the ground. So round two of this walk, I am getting attacked, assaulted, if you will, by probably garbage particles, but also another wave of allergens. And I can't, it felt like a comedy sketch. Like I couldn't, there was no speed I could go at that. I wasn't just basically walking side by side with this stupid street sweeper. The guy's smug looking at me. He knows I'm miserable. I can't hear my podcast to make me feel better. I'd like you to know I'm back safely though. It was, I, I'm, I won't, I will be sneezing. I won't be breathing today. Um, all because everyone has to have their lawn perfect. I have some tough questions to face, you know. Am I a victim? Yes. Will I let this moment define me? No. No, I won't. This will not define my life. I will push on. I will survive. <clears throat> I will take Allegra D. 
How you guys doing? Are you, how's your allergies today? How's your uh, really lame thing you're complaining about like I am? But it's, if they do affect me, it's painful. See, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cough right now. <coughs> that was so fake, Rachel. I'm... <laughs> Terrible acting. <laughs> okay. Anywho. Uh, I hope you guys are doing good. Uh, I love you. I miss you. Wish I could see you in person. Wish I could tour. But I'm, uh, I'm here. I got to hold down the fort for the street sweepers. You know, I got I to gotta monitor. Like a hall monitor making sure they're going at the right speed, apparently. Um, anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, yeah, where do you listen nowadays that you're not everyone's commuting to work all the time? Unless you are, that that's great. But like, tag me in your Insta story and let me know where you're listening. I want to know. I'll repost it. Let's connect. Um, super excited about my guest today. I say that about every guest because I love them all. But I really, really connected with Jill. So, Jill Rosenzweig, she emailed me after, like, I think it was like three episodes ago, maybe four um, I, I did that, um, that how to survive in like a male dominated world episode. Uh, I basically redid the speech that I gave to, um, a women's group in a male dominated industry. And I got an email from her, uh, like, I don't know, almost directly after. And she said like, you know, what? I'm going to take your advice and I'm going to create my own opportunities. I'm going to do this. And she, she emailed me. And she was like, I'm not going to lie, like, I'd love to be a guest on your podcast. And she sent me kind of her, her, not her whole life story, but enough, like the cliff notes of it. And uh, she's so interesting. And I just thought like, A, I love that super brave because it also is something I've done many times where I've booked my own comedy shows or I've just brazenly like reached out to someone who would never even know my name or care about me and ask them to be a guest on my podcast or, you know, uh, offered up so, like I could open for you in the comedy world, you know, all those things. And I just loved her. And, and also she had an incredibly interesting story. She, you know, w- went from, well, I think she resonated with me because we both had six sick parents as kids. And I, you know, she, she lost her mom the day before she went to college and she's, you know, a straight A student, but just was suffering in college because of losing her mom. And so she talks about, you know, struggling in college because of her trauma, eventually being politely asked to leave the college um, and then picking up the pieces again and getting into one of the most prestigious colleges, colleges, then one of the most prestigious law, law schools and having this incredible career and then also deciding I don't think I want to fight for a living because I never thought about that, that like being an attorney, I mean, I should have thought about it, but being an attorney is literally fighting for a living. So she spent 20 years doing that and then full pivoted, wrote a best-selling children's book, now has an exciting true crime podcast. I'm not true crime. I'm sorry. Uh, a law, because <laughs> my brain's always on true crime. Um, a legal podcast called The Whole Truth with Jill Rosenzweig. And, um, actually we ended up bonding so much that we talked for close to two hours. And I think I'm going to split this in a two-parter because the first episode is all about career and, 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 you know, learning your voice when you are in a male dominated world, but also just in any like first job where do you speak up if you feel like you're being disrespected? Do you just keep hunkering down and working? She gives so much cool insight into that and also about, you know, grief and trauma. Um, And so the first episode, I want to just cover that. And then the second episode, we go into kind of what, I, I mean, I haven't begun the process yet, but something that I'm thinking about it on a day-to-day basis. It's, I mean, I might be like a geriatric pregnancy, what they say, but, you know, I'm in my early 30s and I'm wanting to think about uh, the process of having kids. And she really goes into just the highs and lows of that and all of the things her and her husband had to do. Well, she also goes into meeting a husband after, you know, years of bad dating, which totally related with, I was like, I, who haven't I dated and who hasn't been bad, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I just, I think it's a good two-parter. I think it just, she, I resonate with very much 
who she is. And I think you guys will too. The first section is career, new business, or just even how to, you know, function in a new job. And then the second episode is going to be about, oh shit, I spent all this time working on my career. Oh, okay. Now I met someone. Oh no. What do I do now about having kids? And it's, it's her whole journey and it's super interesting. She's absolutely lovely. And, um, yeah. So without further ado, give it up for Jill Rosenzweig. Well, I'm, uh, I believe in your email, you said you're 46. Yes. What, what deal with the devil did you make? I don't understand. How do you look so young? Um, what is the secret? You do look freakishly young. You know that, right? People do tell you that. Thank you. I have, I have things that I do. Okay. You don't have to tell me what they are, but. No, I think, um, first of all, these are things I wish I had known when I was younger. So I'm happy mm-hmm. to tell you these Please things. Please tell me. So. I, I have started recording, so my listeners will hear this now too. Oh, okay. okay. Um, don't use a straw. That's a okay. bad idea. I used to use straws all the time when I was younger because I had heard from someone that if you use a straw when you drink, your teeth will stay white. Yeah, well, I was thinking that, and you have really white teeth, too. Yeah, so I've had a bit of a weird obsession with having white teeth. It's a thing. And it's I notice people's teeth, and I've always been very into having very white teeth. Yeah. So I would even drink coffee. No, I don't want to show you my mouth. (laughs) No, oh, my gosh. Don't be ridiculous. You look gorgeous. Um, So. The straw thing, it so when you drink through a straw, everything bypasses your teeth. So it's a great yeah. thing to do. Oh, I've been told that too. And I do. I don't drink coffee a lot or tea necessarily a lot. Well, I've been starting with the iced tea. I do drink it through a straw because I don't want it to stain my teeth. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've drank red wine through a straw before for that reason. Right. So I was into that for a long time. I'm now thinking that it might not have been a good idea because then you end up getting these lines around your lips. Yeah. And I'm starting to worry that I might've gone too far with the straws. So that's something that I'm telling you not to do that I was actually doing. Okay. And I also whistle a lot and I've realized I need to stop doing that because I'm making that thing with my mouth yeah. to get the lines. Yeah, right? but then again, you got to think about it. Like there, I think I read something once it was like Kim Kardashian or whatever. Like the reason she always just like has this like stoic face besides the fact that you probably can't smile from all the Botox is she right. doesn't want, she doesn't want to make any lines. So she doesn't smile. I'm like, I'd rather have lines and smile. Like, yeah. The so same I'm thing I feel smart. about like extreme dieting and stuff. I'm like, I'd rather have a little sun on my stomach and ha- have a happy life than. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I'm. I've not really paid attention to this stuff until the last few years. I feel like I'm playing catch up. So, um, one thing I did start doing was sleeping with a silk mask over my eyes. Uh huh. Uh, I think if you can sleep on your back, that's good. But I can't do that. So I, I basically sleep on my face, but I use the silk mask. So what is the silk mask doing in that respect? It's protecting you from creasing. I mean, I wear eye mask anyway, because I don't like light, but yeah. So it's supposed to keep you from getting creases on your face, which will give you wrinkles. Uh Um, the other thing that I do I know this is probably TMI and I wonder if my kids will end up listening to this, but I sleep with a bra because I basically always wear a bra. I only don't wear a bra if I'm taking a shower. Damn it. Now my mom's going to listen to this and her point's going to be proven for it. I hate wearing a bra. I have big boobs. I should be wearing bras all the time. Yeah. He says it to me all the time. Like you need to wear a bra. It looks so much better. It's better for you. Ah. Damn it. Now you're going to prove her point. I think it keeps, I think it keeps things up, up and perky and awake. I do think that. I think that's true. Um, other than that, I drink a lot of water. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. I do. But I also think, okay, besides the sleeping in the bra, I do think that that is like probably over years that's helping. But if you only just discovered the no straw thing, like there's gotta be something just in general you've done since like this all happened, like, did you avoid the sun? Uh, do you know no. what I mean? Like this is like no. a 20 year process of taking care of yourself. That's just genetics then. It must be. Cause I really didn't do much. I've never really worn moisturizer. 
I've started okay. to in the past few months. Now you're just getting cocky. <laughs> but I never did. I know. No, no. Um, I'm trying to, I wish I had something to say. You eat super healthy? I go through periods where I eat super healthy. Okay. And then I go off the rails. But for the most part, I do. I have a weird theory that sweet potatoes actually help. You look good. I don't know why. I remember actually like Ryan Reynolds or someone to get in like, ripped up shape for a movie only ate sweet potatoes oh interesting that could be true yeah I just think it makes my skin look better I think yeah. it makes me look more glowy I don't okay. know I like that I like that but I also put makeup on today because I knew I was seeing you and I was such a wreck it felt like a first date so I spent a lot of time putting <laughs> putting makeup on for maybe the first time in at least a month because I've been locked in my house hiding away so oh my gosh you look so good Thank you. Uh, wait, one more question that it will lead me into starting the, the questions I had for you. Yeah. Good segue. I just thought of, um, do you, okay. So in terms of things that you, so you, you mentioned in your email to me and we'll go back to like the beginning part of like how you went to college and, and all that you, yeah. um, had suffered a tragedy. And then when you got to college, you were like partying a bunch. Yeah. So do you, is, is part of your secret now maybe that you don't drink at all? I never drink. Oh, you never drink? I, no, I don't drink, but it's not like a sobriety thing. I just am not much of a drinker. No, I that, that might be why your skin looks like this, Maybe. Though. I will drink if I go out to a restaurant, um, but if I'm home, I won't drink. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I've been home since, I guess, March now. I have not had one drink. Because yeah. it's not the kind of thing that I would think to do at home. Yeah. I will, if I go out on a Saturday night, I'll have a cocktail. Yeah. One. I'm not like a, you know, I'm not a wine drinker at home. I'm not one of those. Yeah. People. That might so be. That, that, that might explain this again. Okay. So then what were you describing in your college years? Or, well, actually, let's put a pen in it because I want to go back to the beginning yeah. before we get to that. Okay. Okay. So... Um, thank you so much for doing this, by the way. I never got properly introduced to you, Jill. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me. It's the most exciting thing ever. Oh my gosh. No, I, I'm, I'm not going to be obsessed with your podcast. I can't believe I just started listening to it today. I'm now I'm like, I want to know all these things. Like it's, it's, it's fascinating. Your podcast is really good. It's like, thank you. especially for someone who listens to a lot of true crime. And I feel like I have like gained a light knowledge of the legal system through these podcasts, you know, but yeah, just if like the same theme theme comes up over and over again, I'm like, Oh, okay. That, that now I kind of know that listening to one episode of yours, I was like, my brain wanted to explode in the best possible way where I was like, I thought I thought this one way and then she just switched it on me. Now I think this way. And I, I, it, it's really good. So tell everyone the name of your podcast too. It's called the whole truth with Jill Rosenzweig. And the idea of it is exactly what you just said. I want to show both sides so that people can really think through for themselves, how they feel about a certain legal issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, one of the things that I'm really trying to push back against is bias in the media. Mm-hmm. And so when I cover a topic, I'm not trying to position it in one way or the other. So I'll say, okay, this is what the defense, the defendant counsel said. This is what the plaintiff counsel said. This is what the judge has to say about it. And then I'll talk about legal history and the, the cases that came before it. Mm-hmm. And I just try to lay it out there for people to sort of understand the law, apply it to the facts, and then come up with whatever conclusion they feel is right. I love that. I definitely want to go into this more closer to the end of the episode because, but I feel like I need to, we need to talk about like how you got to this point. Yeah, sure. Um, (laughs) So you, uh, okay. So growing up, you grew up in Canada. Yes. Proud Canadian. My mom was also born in Canada. White horse. You're kidding. That's real small, right? Yes. Tiny. Yeah, it's really random. They only lived there for like a hot second. That's um, yeah. Um, and so, okay, so you grew up in Canada. And what was your childhood like? Um, I grew up in Montreal. Uh, I think I told you a little bit about this, but I, my mom was sick pretty much from the time I was born. She was sick. Oh, really? Uh, that uh, young you knew? Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, no, I didn't. When I was born, she was sick, but they didn't know what was wrong with her. It took a long time for them to diagnose her. So she was diagnosed when I was five. 
but even before then she was sick. And so how old was she when she was diagnosed with MS? So she was in her thirties. Her first MS attack when she was when she was 18 years old and they had no idea what was wrong with her. And the doctors thought she might have mono. She was just very sick for a very long time. She had no energy. They couldn't figure out what was wrong. Uh, My parents met when they were teenagers they got married and then they had us. My, I have one, one sibling, an older brother. And my mom always had these bouts of illness, but they couldn't figure out what was going on with her. She was finally diagnosed when I was five. Uh-huh. Um, my parents had not the best marriage, but they stuck it out for a long time. I think mostly because my mom was sick. Mm-hmm. So they stayed together, but they were not getting along and they weren't happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I sort of grew up with my mom being in and out of the hospital. And when I was a very young child, my mom was kind of the primary caregiver in my life. She was the person that I would go to if I wasn't feeling well or something was going on. But then more and more happened with my mom not being able to take care of us. Mm -hmm. And so I I sort of started to turn to my dad a lot. Mm -hmm. And he was my role model and the person that I looked up to. And he was an attorney and I grew up going to his office all the time, and I loved hanging out there, um, and I just loved what he did. So I think a lot of that had to do with why I later became an attorney. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that I grew up in a comfortable home. In term- Financially, we were okay, mm-hmm. and in all accounts, you'd say I had a good childhood, mm-hmm. but there was this situation with my mom not being well, and then my parents going through this really horrible divorce. Um, all oh, of so they that. did end up getting divorced. Yeah. Eventually my parents separated when I was 12 mm-hmm. and they finally split up officially when I was 17 was when the divorce went through it was years of horrible litigation with them fighting in court. And eventually they finally split up. And then my mom died when I was 19. And it was actually the day before I was going away to college was the day that she died. Um, It was was brutal. Um, And it came as a shock, which is a little bit weird because she was sick. So you'd think it wouldn't be that shocking. But when I found out she was sick, the doctors actually told me that they didn't think she was going to die at a young age. They said she has MS. Most people with MS live a long life. Mm -hmm. Worst case scenario, she'll end up in a wheelchair. And so that was kind of what I had in my mind. Uh, but for 13 months before she passed away, she was in the hospital. She was very, very sick. And I don't know how come, but for some reason in my mind, I kept expecting her to get well and get mm-hmm. out of there because she had been sick and in the hospital so many times before. And every time she would come out of the hospital. And mm-hmm. so the day that she died was a shock. It came as a complete shock to me. It was a, a real blow. It was I've Mm -hmm. never experienced something like that in my life where it literally felt like a truck hit me in a way. And I, I was a mess. Um, and then the next day I was supposed to be going away to college. Uh, we sat Shiva for my mom, which is like a week long morning process. So I stayed Mm -hmm. home from going to school for that week. And during that week, I kept telling my dad, I don't think I should go away to school. I don't think I can do this right now. And he said to me, you know, you've wanted to go to the school forever. You told your mom, this is the last thing that you told her you planned on doing. I think Mm -hmm. you should just go ahead with it and continue on. And so I ended up going to school. Uh, But it was a mess. As I explained, it was a real mess. Wow. Okay. I have so many questions now that that is, first of all, I totally, I get where you were coming from with the like, if you know someone's sick, then you I've always said this to people that like, if I don't even want to say it, if when uh, my dad, something happens to him, we'll just call it that. Um, uh, I will have known he's been sick for 20 years already. Like I will have known he's had cancer for 20 years, you know, like it's not like getting a phone call in the middle of the night, someone's in a car crash and they've died. Like that is a horror story to me. Like, it like makes yeah, it gives me chills. But like, that's, that's pretty crazy that you kind of were, your expectations were similar to what mine are. And then something did happen that was like, oh, this wasn't supposed to happen. Like, how does that affect you 
mentally in that way where like you're kind of relying on like, well, the doctor's saying she'll live a long life. Like, how did that affect you? It was horrible. I felt for a long time after my mom died, I wasn't even mourning in a normal way. I was angry. I felt betrayed and I felt like I'd been deceived by my mom who had promised me that she wasn't going to die. Mm -hmm. And I felt like she broke a promise to me. Mm. And so I was very angry for a long time. And I was acting out in anger. I think I was self-sabotaging and I was very self-destructive because of it. I felt like also, I think I felt like her dying so young and her having such a horrible life in a way it made me feel like, I didn't deserve to have a happy life when her life had been so horrible. And so there was about a five year period where I didn't feel like I could give myself that happiness. And so I think in a lot of ways I was sabotaging myself because of that. So that was, it was, it, it was such a, it was by far the most defining thing that's happened in my life. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I think that when, you know, going back to what you're saying, someone getting hit by a car or some crazy thing happening out of nowhere, in a way, I think that I always felt like people that experienced that were more entitled to grief. Oh, and interesting. Mm-hmm. I felt like, who am I to even really complain? She was sick for years. This was inevitable. Why am I so upset? I don't really deserve to be that upset. That's so funny you say that that because I I, I first kind of learned uh, about like the hierarchy of grief be, um, from a friend whose uh, brother died of a heroin overdose, wow. and she wow. was explaining to me that like it's it's not something she feels super comfortable talking about a lot because it's like people people feel like they judge more that like oh well he was doing drugs like obviously like so right. it's like a hierarchy of grief of like well, okay, you know, he was already living that life. And then maybe a step away from that is like, well, they were already sick. And, you know, it's not this major tragedy. But I don't know. I mean, I think you can't compare those types of things. But in a weird way, though, like, do you do you feel like having a uh, and I assume you've thought a lot about this because you're like writing a book about it too. You right. feel like having a um, sick parent, like from your early childhood, uh, kind of like changed your DNA in a way, like the how you just sort of live in the sense of like, it's just probably in positive and negatives. Like there's probably like a negative in the sense of like, you just sort of always carry this this feeling Mm-hmm. But do you feel like in a positive way, it's made you more grateful for things? Because I, I found at least when I've had, uh, I, I had a pretty privileged, although I would say I would describe my childhood very much like yours, besides the fact that my parents didn't fight and didn't get divorced. It was comfortable. Right. Uh, I, I, you know, they bought me a car when I was 16. Like I was a very blessed kid like that. But, uh, and, and a lot of friends, you know, growing up and even living in LA, a lot of female friends specifically were always like, oh, your life's perfect. Like, you know, you have nothing to complain about. Um, And I always felt like, well, yeah, I guess not. But like, I, I definitely don't feel sorry for myself in a way like maybe someone does when they uh, break a nail or a boyfriend breaks up with them because I dealt with something from such an early age that was just so adult to deal with right that like in a positive way I feel like I don't sweat the small stuff right that makes sense to me you feel like that that was yeah I think that um well I went through that dark period for about five years and then after that I don't know something just clicked in me and it made me realize that I had to let that feeling go. And I sort of made a decision that I was going to have a happy life. And it Mm -hmm. was a choice. It was a conscious choice that I made that the best way to honor my mom was to live a happy life and be successful and choose happiness every single day. Mm -hmm. And I think that having a sick mom um, and going through so much at such a young age has made me 
really mindful of not wallowing in things and trying to be positive every single day. Uh, I'm very conscious of being a mom and how I want my kids to have a great life and Mm -hmm. I I don't want them to have sadness in their lives. And so it's, I'm very mindful about that. Mm -hmm. And I also think that just the way that I approach things in general, like I'm always looking for something to celebrate. We have huge Mm -hmm. celebrations for the tiniest little things in my house. Oh, I love that. I feel like I want every day to matter mm-hmm. and not take take for granted any day. I want every day to stand out as a special day. And so That's I cool. do think in a lot of ways it has impacted me in a positive way, but I think that I could easily have gone in the other direction because I did go in that direction for a period. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that um, it took me feeling terrible and sort of going down that path of negativity and despair to then turn it around and Mm -hmm. I've been living this way for many years now so that was was years ago what was that period like because you you, you've said like you don't really like to drink or whatever uh but you I mean so you go to college uh yeah uh and then you said that you were politely asked to leave which I think is a very funny way to say it well explain what happened if like you're not like yeah I got there a week after my mom died and Mm -hmm. I think it was almost like a magnetic thing where the people that were messed up found each other. There were plenty Mm -hmm. of people at my school that were really studious and going to classes every day. Even the, the girl that I shared a room with was like that. She was a good kid. And I, set out to find the other people that wanted to do the wrong thing with me. And we were kind of a group of friends and none of us tried to make each other better. So I I went to class for maybe the first week of school. And I remember I was invited to go somewhere for a weekend in someone's hometown. Like one of the people that I became friends with said, do you want to come to my hometown with me for the weekend? I said, sure. I packed some clothes in my backpack that I typically use for class. Mm-hmm. And those clothes stayed in my backpack for the rest of the year because I just never went to class. I never Oh my went. gosh. What did you do the whole time? You were just depressed and... Um, no, I was... I mean, in my mind, I was having fun. So I went to school in a relatively small town. Uh, there were a lot of townies in the town that were very cool. They'd never even finished high school. I'd never met people like that before. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I went to a private school for elementary school and high school, and everyone was very academic. It was very, you know, high-achieving, straight-laced people. And then I show up in this town and start going to clubs and meeting all the locals there. And, you know, my good friend was a DJ, and another one was a promoter, and it was right around the time I'm dating myself, but this was right around the time that the rave scene started. There was a lot of craziness. And, yeah. Um, Everyone loves a good bit of gossip. Go inside the juiciest stories on Clickbait with Bachelor Nation. Hosts Tasha Adams, Hannah Ann Sluss, and Joe Amabile know what it's like to live in the spotlight. They've seen that fame can mean being praised, adored, and sabotaged. Sometimes all in the same day. On Clickbait, they share what they've learned from their wild days at Bachelor Mansion to bring you a new kind of celebrity news podcast. Each week, they break down the biggest stories in pop culture, dissecting every outrageous headline, debunking every celebrity rumor, and sorting through what's truly clickbait and what's real and with these three the arguments about hollywood scandals will be as dramatic as the headlines themselves every week features a different celebrity guest dishing unfiltered opinions on the gossip of the day you will not want to miss these hilarious explosive revelations subscribe to clickbait with bachelor nation on apple podcasts or spotify or listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. All of my friends, none of us finished. So (laughs) exams came and all of a sudden I was taking, I was in an honors program. I actually skipped a year of college and was put into second year college because 
I had these insane grades going in. Yeah. You know, I, I, so I got put into second year, which was in a way it was a cool thing to be put in second year. But at the same time I was hanging out with a bunch of first year students because those were the kids that were my age and their classes were a lot less demanding than mine. Well, especially and, the honors program is also harder classes in general, not just. Yeah. yeah. So I was taking, I was in honors English. And for example, I took a course called Shakespeare mm-hmm. and it, we read or we were supposed to read. I didn't read them, but we had, I think about <laughs> 30 different Shakespeare plays that we needed to read and we had to know everything about them. And then at the end of the year, we had an exam and it wasn't a semester long thing. It was a full year course. Mm-hmm. So we're rolling around to May now. And I have to take these exams that cover the entire year's worth of class. And I have absolutely no idea what has happened in the class. I don't, there's absolutely no way that I can catch up with it. And so I went to see the head of the school and I begged for more time to take my exams. Mm-hmm. And she said, okay, she actually felt sorry for me. Oh. Said, okay. I understand your mom died. You've been going through some stuff and I was bawling my eyes out. Please give me more time. So she said, okay, you can take the summer and take your exams during the summertime. Mm-hmm. Well, I was so terrified to tell my father what was going on because he was such a strict parent and was so serious about school. There was no way I could explain to him that I completely screwed up the year. So I said to my dad, can I stay at school so I can take summer courses? So he said, okay. And he was all excited that I was- I have anxiety for you. (laughs) Yeah, it was horrible. So- He said, okay, sure. So I signed up for three summer courses. So now on top of the entire year's worth of school, I now have these three additional classes that I need to get through. And it all just sort of came crashing down where I couldn't manage it. It was too much. And I finally ended up sending my dad a fax. This is a fact. I know this sounds so crazy. I sent him a letter that I sent through a fax machine that showed up at his office at his law firm. And it was this huge confession where I said, <laughs> I'm so right. sorry. I shouldn't laugh, but it is kind of funny. Like, it's horrible. What, it's horrible. What an impressive way to like find out news. Like, it's not like, yeah. it's not like, you know, everyone expects emails, whatever, like a phone call, like yeah. a fax to his office. It's just like, well, here's a case that's coming in. And then here's this. And then, oh, This is a letter from your daughter. Yeah, and I think I'm pretty sure his secretary probably found it coming through the machine, one page coming out at a time. And he, I gather he read it because about eight hours later, he showed up at my door and said, you're coming home. Pack your stuff. That's it. And so... Um, I had to explain to the head of the school that I wasn't going to take my finals and it wasn't happening. And they said, okay, thank you very much for being here. We think (laughs) it's best that you move on. And I moved back to Montreal and I made it a point. I was determined to start over. I think my father was devastated and, you know, he just couldn't believe that this had happened to me because this was not who I was, you know, I'd really, but he wasn't taking into account that your mom had just died. And like, it's a different generation though. Like it's, it's, he had an attitude about his whole thing with what happened with my mom was you need to buck up and keep moving forward. Oh my God. I literally almost just said it's a different generation. My parents have always (laughs) been the ones that are like, suck it up. Yeah. I think for my father, the whole approach in his mind was don't think about it too much, just move forward. And I think for me, I needed to process what had happened. Exactly. I wasn't really doing that. I didn't go see a therapist after it happened. I couldn't Mm -hmm. really talk to my dad about it. No one in my family wanted to talk about it. It was very much, okay, just focus on school and move forward with it. And when I came home, I think my father probably, if I asked him today, do you think maybe I should not have gone away to school when I did? And I told you that I really didn't think I should go away. He probably would say yes now, but he thought it was the right decision for me. And, you know, in the end, it all worked out. I think probably I had to go through that year and experience what I did. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it was a tough year. And then 
I had to come back to Montreal and completely start over. So how did that look? Where did you go? So when I, when I went away to school, I had been accepted at a school in Montreal called McGill university, which is a really good school in Canada. Mm -hmm. And once I got asked to leave the school in Ontario where I'd been going, McGill would not accept me. I couldn't get in. And I was really upset about the fact that I had squandered my opportunity to go to McGill. I was determined to get into McGill. So I ended up going to a different college. I spent a year there. Mm-hmm. I became very serious about going to school every day. I started working at my dad's office. I completely changed my life. I was not going out. I was very focused on doing well in school. I got a 4.0 GPA and I applied to transfer into McGill and they accepted me. I was one of two people that got accepted that year as a transfer student. So after that, I said to myself, okay, that's it. I need to really make the most of this opportunity. And I focused on my studies through McGill and then applied to go to law school. And, you know, then off I went to law school in the States. Yeah. Okay. So... So you, you get, okay. So you, you, you end up, you, you become a, a attorney. Um, what, uh, what was your first job? What did that look like? And where did the, cause we've talked about it via email or you sent it to me. Uh, yeah. where did you start to first experience like, Oh, this is a really male dominated world. And I felt from your email and we'll get into the, this specific day later, what happened on nine 11. I was like, I, I had so many questions about, was it, why was she afraid? Because you were just, you had a really scary boss or you just didn't know. So let's, let's just start with like your first job and how you started to experience that it was so male dominated. I mean, you legitimately experienced abuse, I think from what I. Yeah, it wasn't great. Um, I, when I graduated from law school, I got a job at a firm that had three male partners It was a smaller boutique firm. I went into commercial litigation, which is basically business disputes and all court related. And commercial litigation particularly is very male dominated. So if you go into certain areas of law, if you become a divorce attorney, there are a lot of female divorce attorneys. Mm -hmm. Um, Certain other areas have a lot of women, but business litigation was primarily male. And well, because women couldn't run a business, obviously. I mean, yeah, so I why know. would they be great attorneys for it? It's so weird. <laughs> I don't really know. I, I wonder why. I think it's considered a tough field. And yeah. I, my father was a commercial litigator and I really wanted to do what my dad did. Mm-hmm. And so I went into that field kind of knowing, even in law school, when it came to classes that people were taking, a lot of the people in my classes that were trying to sort of groom themselves to become commercial litigators were the male law students. So Uh I sort of knew going in that it would be heavily male, but I always considered myself a tough girl. And I was, I had a lot of male friends growing up. I could hang with the boys. I I was never intimidated by boys, Mm -hmm. but I think that one thing that they don't tell you in law school, and I wish that they had really said this more, was that they're not really preparing you to practice law when you go to law school. Oh. They don't teach you how to practice. They teach you how to think like a lawyer. They teach you legal principles, but they don't teach you how to actually do anything. And I think that I felt very insecure going in when on the first day, which was the day before 9-11 was my first day working at the firm. They asked me to do some work. And you were in New York. I was in Boston. Boston, okay. I was living in Boston. And I showed up for my very first day and they said, we want you to do this thing. And I should have said, can you give me a sample? Mm -hmm. Can I have a sample to work off of? But I had no idea that that was something that you could do where you could say, look, I, I've never done this before. I need a sample. So I just- Oh, I would have never asked for it either. I would have just faked it. I've been like, absolutely, I know how to do this. And right, I, that's what I did. I was like, no problem, you got yeah. it. Yeah. Totally. So I went into my office and I tried to figure it out and I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And so I was trying to sort of fumble my way through it. 
And I just felt very nervous about them realizing how little I knew. So I was in my head a lot thinking about how I didn't know if what I was doing was right. I was very insecure. And when the second day at the office was 9-11 and everyone, I got to work maybe at 8.15 in the morning and all of a sudden all this chaos is going on and all the lawyers are running into the conference room to watch on the TV as the planes are hitting the towers. And I'm thinking to myself, I need to just show that I'm going to continue to work. I need to mm-hmm. just keep going. And what happened was the people that took off from Logan Airport in Boston were staying at a hotel diagonally across the street from my office. And so all of a sudden, the entire area was being swarmed with police because they realized that the terrorists were staying at this hotel across the street. Oh, oh my God. And so all of a sudden, they started banging on the doors of every single office in my building telling us that we needed to evacuate. And that's when uh, one of the attorneys walked up to me and he said, you don't have to be working right now. You can go home for the day. You can go. But up until that point, even though everything was going on and the world was falling apart, I was sitting at my desk trying to get my work done. Um, And I think a lot of that, I, I don't know that it would have been different if my bosses were female. I think a lot of it just had to do with that young lawyer, first day on the job kind of attitude, being Mm -hmm. afraid to fail, really. Yeah. And you didn't know anyone really that well there. And yeah. No. Were you living alone? Did you have to go home alone after all that? Yeah, I ran home. I was living near Fenway Park Mm -hmm. and my office was near the Prudential Center and I ran all the way home um, and it was total chaos. There were tons of people running around on the street. It was terrifying. And because I was staying near Fenway Park, people were worried that they may try to bomb or hit. Yeah, another place like that. Yeah. So I was hiding inside my apartment. I mean, terrified. Yeah, it was really scary. Oh, my God. That That's another, like, milestone in your life, formative moment of, like, yeah, your first job. Then you're also alone during that. Like, that's that's crazy. Yeah. So Okay, so then you move on to um, – uh, did you go back to that firm? No, because everyone lost their job right away, right? I, I'm not right away. It took a few months, so I kept going there. Um, while I was there, I was treated pretty terribly. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of abuse from the men working at that firm. And I really, is this where they threw uh, briefcases at you or a different firm? <laughs> they threw papers. You, you got, you got to explain yeah. this and yeah. they weren't Jewish uh, enough or whatever. There was, what a, does that even uh, mean? <laughs> I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. Well, I started there in September. So right after I started, there was Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur which even the least religious Jew, pretty much most Jews I know don't work on Rosh Hashanah mm-hmm. before. And so I went to speak to HR about it and said, I'd like to take those days off. Mind you, the, the partners at the firm were Jewish. So you'd think that they would be understanding about it. But no, the head of HR said to me, she said, look at you. And I looked at myself and like, what, what the hell? Said, well, she said, you're not Jewish enough to take off for those holidays. Uh, you're absolutely not taking off. And I that said, is well, so bizarre. It was horrible. I, I think know. she was bitter at the idea that I would just start there and get days off. She felt like I needed to be there for a certain period of time before I'd earn the right to take days off of work. Mm-hmm. I ended up having to go talk to one of the partners and saying, listen, I, I can't work on those days. Is it okay if I don't work on those days? And he said it was fine. But for the most part, my experience there was pretty horrible. And, you know, the time that someone threw papers at me, I made one spelling error in a 30-page document, and it was in a title. So I had no idea when you do spell check, if there's something in all caps and it's underlined, spell check does not. And maybe they've updated it since then. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. Yeah, back then. it. Not that I'm submitting papers for anything at this point, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And now I would never care, but there was one mistake and the partner that was reviewing my work found the mistake and called me in to his office and started screaming and yelling, swearing at me. 
like what the fuck is wrong with you, all this stuff, and then threw the papers right at me and it hit me and then just fell on the floor. And I remember afterward regretting that I went and bent down and picked the papers up. Mm. I felt like if I had any dignity in that moment, I would have said to that attorney, you're never going to treat me this way again. And I would have walked out of his office, but I didn't do that. Um, And I think in a lot of respects, that first job taught me a lot about how I want to be treated and how I won't allow people to to treat me a certain way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that very first job was, it was pretty rough. And I, I think that I was just insecure at the time and I didn't know how to defend myself. Yeah. But I also think like, I, I, I agree with that, but I think any person, let me know if you agree with this, can fall into a place of like, well, also like that, that form of like workplace abuse is small compared to like people that work in factories and are literally being like, a, you know, uh, which I hate to do the hierarchy thing, but, uh, but I think anyone can fall into a place of being, uh, kind of in a, uh, abusive situation in a job when, because you need the money. So you're just like, I guess I have to do this. Like mm-hmm. I had a very, very insanely emotional, abusive boss, uh, for years in LA. It was, but I, but I, I, I kept the job because she let me go on auditions. I kept the job because she let me do stand up and, she also would randomly be really nice to me. She'd like buy me, she'd like go to this like store, this like really high end, like a uh, consignment store and like buy me clothes. But then other days she would count the time, like the hour or the minutes that I was at the grocery store getting something for her. And then on the way home, start screaming at me that I hadn't sent an email and I'm driving like through the canyons and like, I'm like, I'm going to get in a car accident that you had me do groceries for you. I did as many emails as I could. And now I'm driving like, but just like weird psychological sort of abuse. Yeah. And, but I think I stayed in it because I was like, it's a good setup where I can make money, but I can still pursue my dreams of the entertainment industry. And you can, it's harder to get, it's all, okay. Here's a good example. It's, it's almost hard for a, a, a person that's being abused in a marriage to leave the situation if they're being financially taken care of. Right. Right. Yeah. Do you feel that way where like, I mean, yes, it was your first job. So you were naive, but do you feel that anyone could fall into that trap at any stage of their life? I think that there's that though. I wouldn't say that was what was the driving force for me. It wasn't financial. It was more that, it's hard to explain, but when you're, when you're dealing with lawyers, mm-hmm. they can have a certain godlike persona to them, and they are oftentimes very powerful, they're very assertive, um, you aspire to learn from them. The, the people I worked for were brilliant, and I wanted to show them that I was capable. Mm -hmm. And I also was used to doing well at things. And so the fact that I was having trouble at the firm and not necessarily excelling at these assignments, though now in retrospect, I realize there's no way you could assign, you could excel at something if you have no way of knowing how to do it. Right. Totally. But for me, I wasn't figuring these things out on my own. And all I wanted to do was have these people think highly of me because I thought so highly of them. Mm -hmm. I was looking for their approval. That's what it was. They were so impressive, so brilliant, so accomplished. And I wanted them to think of me as one of them. And so part of me also didn't realize that this abuse, it's almost like, you know, when you hear about people that um, try to go, they try to join a sorority or a fraternity, and there's a bit of a hazing process. Yeah. In my mind, I thought that that was kind of just the way it goes, that you show up at a law firm, and your first job, they treat you like dirt. And a lot Mm -hmm. of my friends at other firms were experiencing the same thing. Yeah. I didn't realize that until you stand up for yourself and you tell them, I'm not going to take this from you. A lot of the time that's what happens. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was normal. It was that I didn't really know any better. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I think more than the financial thing, I didn't want to, I would never have considered quitting because that wouldn't look good on my resume. I would have had a gap. Yeah. And so for me to succeed at my first job out of law, law school was very important. Mm-hmm. And I also, when you get out of law school, you don't know yet that you're licensed. So you take the bar right after you finish school, but you don't find out if you pass the bar for months after that. So oh, oh that's a job. Yes. Yeah, uh-huh. so you, you start at your first law, law job, not being a licensed at- attorney yet. And all you want to do is make that firm happy so that they'll keep you, especially because if you fail the bar, you want them to not fire you so that you have the opportunity to take the bar again and not be jobless. Okay. So your first job isn't even as an attorney. It's like as a somewhat of an assistant or you're a JD. So you have a law degree, uh, but you cannot do any legal work without supervision because you're not technically a licensed attorney yet. Got it. So there's this other thing going on where you need them to keep you because it, God forbid you fail the bar, then wow. you really won't be able to find a job. Yeah. So there's a power struggle. There's this power imbalance there that affects the, the dynamics of that relationship. How would you, okay. So in any industry, I don't, it's probably different than law, but would you advocate for someone standing up for themselves right away? Or do you believe in sort of like playing the game or do what you did? You picked up the papers instead of, okay, so think about that. And then what you would tell your kids and how you would want them to handle their first job in that way. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing I'll say is that, and I'll, I'll sort of, I'll I'll explain this with a story. After Mm -hmm. I left that firm, I ended up moving to New York And I interviewed at a bunch of different places to get a job. And for a lot of those interviews, they'd ask me, have you ever filed this kind of motion? Have you ever argued this thing in court? And I was trying to BS my way through these interviews. Uh And I did not get hired at one of those positions. And finally, I interviewed at a firm. And the attorney there said to me, so have you done this? Have you done that? And I just decided that day I was going to be honest. And I said, you know what? I haven't done any of that. I've never done those things before. I said, you know, if you're looking for someone who's done all those things before and you don't have to train them, then I'm not the right person for you. I said, but if you're looking for someone who's smart and capable and you'll only have to show me one time, then I promise you, you won't be disappointed. That's great advice. They hired me. They hired me. And I think that the thing that I learned from that is the biggest mistake you can make is pretending you know things that you don't know because Mm -hmm. people will figure it out. It's very obvious when you don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And it's way worse because then you can't go and ask questions. Once you've said you know what you're doing, then what, right? So Oh, wow, yeah. I the best thing I ever did was being very straightforward about it and saying, look, I I don't know anything. I I also think that that shows a lot of confidence and capability though. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like someone that's willing to be like, I'm smart. I know I like, you only have to tell me once. And, and who's also confident enough to admit that not pretend and kind of hide in the shadow. Like that, that shows a major strength in someone. It was great. And it was the best job that I could have ever had because they taught me so much. They knew I didn't know anything and they Mm -hmm. took the time to teach me because I never pretended to know anything. So I felt very comfortable saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Can we sit down and you'll explain this to me? Mm -hmm. And I learned a ton from that job. And that was the best decision I ever made. And so if I 100%, I would tell someone, don't be shy to say you don't know things. Focus on your intelligence, your drive, your mm-hmm. willingness to, you know, work through long hours or whatever the case may be. And that's the kind of person that I was. I would work endlessly until I figured things out. I was relentless in trying to get things right. I was very determined. And those are really the qualities that people want to see in mm-hmm. you when they're looking to hire someone. And, you know, in a way, there's not it can be seen as a positive if you don't know anything because people can train you in the way that they want you to be. They Mm -hmm. can mold you into the type of person they want you to be. But when you come in knowing nothing, 
it's like you're a blank slate and then they can they can make you into especially as a lawyer some lawyers develop very bad habits that are then hard to break Mm -hmm. but I had no bad habits because I basically didn't know anything yeah I think that's really good advice they all all law firms have a certain style and the thing that they worry about is you're coming in with someone else's style so Such that an might interesting not apply world. Yeah, but in in the legal world, for sure, at different law firms, they have different approaches to things, and they on they don't love the idea that you're coming in with a specific idea in your mind as to how you're going to do things. Um, and then with your question about dropping, picking up those papers, or allowing people to speak badly toward me, I would one hundred percent say that you should never let someone disrespect you. Never. It doesn't mean that you have to scream and yell. I think you can very calmly say, I will not allow you to speak to me that way. Please address me differently. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. Um, So, okay. So I'm just looking at my notes. I think it was after your first job, which we have kind of covered, but did the that did the moment with the homeless man after that moment kind of change you? I mean, enough that you sent it in an email, and I, yeah. I, it was very heartwarming for me. Can you explain that a little? Yeah, I've always, I don't know, I've always had a thing, especially when I lived in cities that I walked in. Now I live in LA and I never walk anywhere. Although I know you walk, which is very cool. Yeah, and I, I feel like you're going to say something that I've already felt in New York, and like I've been scolded by people. I make friends with homeless people. I, yeah. I, I will go up and like give them. Yeah. I, I, but some of my friends have been like, you know, you shouldn't do that because that's like, you don't know if they're like on meth and there's like, I right. guess so there's apparently like something that meth does to your brain that you don't know, uh, right from wrong for example. Like I, I forget someone, yeah. one of my friends was concerned for me and she was like, they don't, they don't know, like you, they could think you're coming up to steal from them and they might just start stabbing you. So don't right. That are not necessarily. I wonder. I maybe that's true. I never thought about that. I never. Either did I. I I never. Nothing bad has ever happened. Yeah. So far, so good. But yeah, yeah, you might be right. Uh, There was a homeless man who lived. I guess you could say he was always in the same location, and it was on my way to and from work. I'd see him in the morning, and I'd see him in the afternoons when I'd leave work, and we became friendly. I'd see him all the time. And I would tell him about my job being this terrible job, which was kind of ironic because I'm complaining to this man who's living on the streets about my crappy law job. That's hilarious. Um, he was so sympathetic. Read, read the room, Jill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, yeah, my job sucks. And he's like, um, hello. Uh, so, but he was, the funny thing is he was really concerned for me. He was always, are you, how are you doing today? Oh, and I was talking my about my life. And the day that I ended up getting laid off from that horrible job, I was walking home from work and I saw him and I said, he said, how are you doing? And I said, well, not so great. I got laid off today. And he just looked at me and I've never seen someone with such a huge smile. And he said, that's fantastic news. Now go and live the life that you were meant to live. And I, you know, it, it definitely affected me because I think that you can get stuck in a really bad situation. And even though, you know, it's not a great situation for you, it doesn't mean that you're going to move on from it. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's something that I've really learned over the years where I think as I've gotten older, I'm much better at ending things that I don't think are making me happy. Mm -hmm. But at that age, I wasn't in that position. And for me, getting laid off from my first job as an attorney felt like the end of the world. It was like the sky was falling on my head, but it really happened. And it gave me some perspective. And I realized that I had wanted to move to New York anyway, and it was a great opportunity for me to start over and move to the city that I wanted to be in and find a new job. And so, yeah, that was pretty amazing. And I've met some other amazing homeless people through the years. I, yeah, see, I love, I, I honestly, I love people who've lived. They have stories. Like, I, I was just thinking, too, I was like, you were uh, technically a random person. I, I don't know. I didn't know. You sent me an email. Yeah. I loved your email. And I was like, oh, I'm excited to hear about her story. I have to tell you, interviewing you and podcasting with you is by far more interesting than any like I mean I'm sure it, like blogger or like you know do you personal I mean 
there's been, there's been several comedians and TV personalities and people that I've talked to, like Wendy McClellan Covey above all is one of the coolest, nicest people ever. Um, but like just people that have real stories or at least like, and I, and I know these people have real stories, but like, they just don't talk about them. Like it's like separate from their, or maybe they're just so disconnected that like, I've enjoyed talking to you so much and I just, I, I find you very interesting. So thank you so much. Yeah. It's weird for me because I feel like I know you. <laughs> so I mean, I, I think when you have a podcast, people do get to know you. I mean, you talk yeah. about your life enough that like, right. It's really weird because I feel like I already know you. You're meeting me for the first time, but I, it's, it's just funny. Even when you're talking about this job that was terrible in my head, I'm like, I know that job. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. So funny. Well, thank you so, so much for doing this. Um, tell all my listeners where they can find you, social media, your podcast, your book. Yes. Okay. Um, on social media, my Instagram is Jill Rosenzweig author. So Rosenzweig is R-O-S-E-N-S-W-E-I-G. It's a little... It's a tough name. Yeah, I know. And I I married into that name. My maiden name was so awesome that it's it's a little... What was it? Overland. Overland. Yeah, that's easier. Yeah. Very easy. Um, My book is Bailey Bloom and the Battle of the Bug, and you can find it on Amazon. Um, I have a website for the book, and it's just jillrosenzweig.com. And the podcast is The Whole Truth with Jill Rosenzweig. And you can find the podcast pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. So basically, if you look for Jill Rosenzweig, you'll find all my things. 